I personally was groomed and abused for nearly a decade from the ages of five to about 14. I then went through the, the justice system, was sort of chewed up and spat back out as many young girls are. People find it a lot easier to ignore victims than they do to, to go after the perpetrators. It was due to nervousness about race mm -hmm. that in many cases the police and local authorities refused to take these cases up. They were worried about being called racist. They were worried about being called right-wing or bigots. Child sexual exploitation is still happening in towns and cities across the UK. This isn't a crime of the past. And this is another thing that, that, uh, that those in positions of authority like to say, that, you know, mistakes were made and lessons were learned, but this isn't happening anymore. Well, as recently as 2020, in England and Wales alone, there was hundreds, over 700 reports of, of alleged child sexual exploitation. By refusing to let myself become all consumed and become prey to what was done to me I can, I can defy all of those expectations for me I can it's kind of like giving the middle finger and saying you tried everything you could to break me and I still rose up hello and Welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is a journalist, and when I introduce her, I should make clear she's not Sam Smith, she's Samantha Smith. Samantha Smith, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's really good to have you on the show. We've got lots to talk about. Before we do, and in fact, help us set it up by telling us your story. Who are you? How are you where you are? What has been your journey through life that leads you to be sitting here talking to us? Yeah, of course. I am 20 years old. I'm from, I was originally born in Surrey, but I moved to Telford in the West Midlands. When I was very young. I, I sort of fell into this line of work when I was 17. I had, um, I had always been interested in politics and current affairs, but when I was 17 in the general election 2019, I helped to run, uh, my local MP's election campaign and, from that, I, I continued to, to get involved in, in local politics. When schools closed in 2020, I was uh, in March 2020, I was 17. And I, I come from a disadvantaged background. So I'm legally estranged from my parent. I was homeless from the age of 16. Legally, I was under social services, you know, sofa surf from for about uh, 16 months, if, if I'm remembering rightly, you know, moving from sleeping bags to sofas every night, sitting in McDonald's and, and nursing a cup of coffee until 6am to get the school bus in the morning. But I, 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 I've always been on Twitter and I wrote a tweet in August, 2020 about the cancellation of exams and the impact it would have on disadvantaged students, the way that you know, young people were being judged based on their postcode rather than their potential. And that was picked up by a spectator journalist who asked if I'd be interested in writing a, a piece for, for the paper, for the, the publication. And from there, it sort of snowballed. And now here I am, here yeah. I am today. Well, you've got an astonishing CV for someone who's 20 years old. So very, <laughs> very impressive and kudos to you. And one of the things you, you didn't mention is one of the, the big things that I think also propelled uh, your sort of role as a, as a commentator was your commentary on the grooming gangs and all of that, because it's something that you were personally affected by as well. Yes. So as I said, I'm, I'm, I grew up in Telford in the West Midlands, which is some of your, your viewers I'm sure will be aware is one of the, the key towns, I suppose, in the national child sexual exploitation scandal, over 1000 girls fell victim to organized grooming gangs in, in Telford over a course of of around 30 years, I personally was groomed and abused for nearly a decade from the ages of five to about 14. I didn't come forward to, to anyone with the abuse that I experienced until I was 16. I then went through the, the justice system, was sort of chewed up and spat back out as many young girls are. I remember, I'll never forget being told by a social worker, if you were physically abused, why were there no bruises? That's a, that's a comment that really stuck with me. And I think when, for a long time, I wasn't aware that there were other girls in my position. There were other girls that had been sexually abused, that had been groomed, that had, had had 
such a horrendous experience. And so when everything began began to come out in, in 2018, 2019 on the grooming scandal, on the uh, the the culture of exploitation, ignorance, and and silence in towns like Telford, it struck home for me. And I first spoke about my story and my experience in 2020. That's when I went public with it, I suppose. And I have worked my hardest to bring awareness to the issue, to amplify survivors' voices, and to uh, just really keep the conversation in in the the media attention because so many girls like me have been disenfranchised and marginalized and silenced by those in power so without uh, without people willing they're willing to speak up whether it's anonymously or or showing their faces I waved my right to anonymity perpetrators groomers rapists grooming gangs they're going to be able to to continue to thrive and continue to groom rape abuse exploit other little girls so that's that's why i i suppose i chose to speak out yeah and uh, we've had uh, a survivor of the grooming gangs on the show dr ella hill i don't know if you're familiar with her if you mm. saw that interview yes. but she was anonymized and so um you're very courageous to talk about it in public the way that you do. And I'm curious because one of the things I've discovered after we published that interview, I contacted every journalist I could and I went, look, watch this interview. Why don't you write something about this? And they're just, they were not interested. Why do you think that is? It's the age old, the age old issue of cultural sensitivity, I, I would say. Mm -hmm people find it a lot easier to ignore victims than they do to, to go after the perpetrators. We saw it, it with local councils, with social services, with the police, with the Crown Prosecution Service, with mainstream media, with the government. The list goes on. Those in positions of power and authority don't want to, to have this conversation because it, because it exposes their own failings. It exposes the culture of ignorance and silence and victim blaming that was perpetrated over decades. You know, young girls have been trying to speak out. This isn't something new. This isn't a, a, a new occurrence of, of all of a sudden victims and survivors coming out of the woodworks and wanting to share their stories. No, they went to sexual health clinics. They went to the police. They went to their teachers, their social workers, and they were ignored at every turn because they, they were viewed as second-class victims. And those in, in positions of authority were scared about the implications of accusing, in the case of grooming gangs, particularly... Uh, predominantly Pakistani men of being rapists and of raping predominantly white working class girls. It's far easier to pivot the conversation away from from victims and survivors because they are traditionally disenfranchised. They don't come from the sort of background that that has they don't have support. They don't have people that are going to fight for them, that are going to stand up for them. They aren't they aren't privileged or affluent in, in any sort of way. And so their their only hope, are, are, you know, the the legal system and and social services and social care, and if they don't listen, how how are the media going to be expected to pick it up? Because at the end, it comes down to them being treated as second class victims. I think. And they were treated as second class. I wouldn't even say second class. I'd say eighth class because some of the language used about these girls was disgusting. I think the term white slags was used as. Yes, that was that was used in Telford quite a lot, and the uh, the Crowther report, which was the the independent inquiry into child sexual exploitation in Telford, it was revealed that police and and local authorities referred to the girls as packy shaggers, as white slags, as child prostitutes. That was a big one. The idea that a child can prostitute themselves, and these are these are young girls, girls as as young as ten or eleven. In in the case of Telford, being told that this is your fault, you brought this on yourself, you consented. It's because of your actions and your lifestyle that that you're in the position you are today. I again, I, I remember being told at one point that my actions had led me to where I was, and. Uh, this was when I was 16 or 17. 
and it, it reinforces this idea, this internal, this internalized shame that a lot of victims and survivors have that somehow they brought it on themselves when realistically, and I'll say this, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, children cannot consent to sex. Mm. Children cannot be asking for it. Children cannot be packy shaggers or or white slags or child prostitutes. Children cannot consent. And those adults that are preying on vulnerable little girls are criminals, they're rapists, and they're predators. They are are the ones in the wrong here, not the little girls who were abused. And you're saying that, and it makes complete sense. And of course, it's just a statement of fact. But the the reality is that's not how these girls were perceived. And it was a failing right the way through, the, like you said, the court system. Do you think the police are misogynist or misogynistic, the police forces? That you from your own experience, from seeing the way they've interacted with other victims? I'd say that it goes far deeper than misogyny because misogyny is is an inherent hatred towards women, but this isn't just misogynistic. It's classist. It's, I would go so far as to say it's racist Mm -hmm. to, to suggest that, that these young white working class girls are white slags for being victimized and being abused. It's, it's so much more than just a hatred of women and girls. It's a hatred of everything that these, that these little, these young children were. It's attacking every part of their identity and suggesting that they are somehow responsible for, for the abuse they suffered due to their immutable characteristics. So I say, you know, and, and there's, there's a wider debate about the failings of the Crown Prosecution Service to bring, uh, sexual assault and, and, uh, sexual, misconduct cases to trial. I believe it's, I believe it's 96, 98.6% of cases, of rape cases never make it to court in the UK. That's just 1.4% of, of victims that are able to, to have their, their day in court, to have their case even heard. So how many thousands upon thousands of, of victims are, are falling at the first hurdle or the second hurdle or, or so on and so forth? Yes, there is, there is absolutely a, a misogyny problem in the police, I would say. You know, the, the fact that violence against women and girls still isn't being taken seriously in 2023 is beyond, beyond imagination. But when it comes to child sexual abuse and child sexual exploitation, this particular type of crime goes far deeper than, than, than plain misogyny. And there's also, let's not, let's not ignore cowardice as well. Because the fact that a large proportion of the men committing these crimes came from a Pakistani or Bangladeshi Muslim background, suddenly that meant that they, a lot of police and especially a lot of political commentators and a lot of politicians started to you know, get cold feet when dealing with this. Absolutely. I, and this has been highlighted in the independent reports mm-hmm. in Rotherham, Rochdale, Oldham, Telford, that those in positions of power, and I quote the Telford report here, failed to do their most basic duty in investigating reports of, of alleged child sexual exploitation. They, and it, it was also said in, in the quote, in the Crowther report, in the Telford report, that it was due to nervousness about race, mm-hmm. that in many cases, the police and local authorities refused to take these cases up. Uh, I'm a firm believer in the fact that those in in position of authority were blinded by fear mm. when it comes to grooming child sexual exploitation child sexual abuse in general they were worried about being called racist they were worried about being called right wing or bigots or or radicals they were worried about the the consequences on their own careers if they spoke up and that's why there there were so few whistleblowers and the few that did speak out were absolutely slammed they had their careers ruined take maggie oliver who is an absolutely brilliant woman brave and and awe-inspiring i work very closely with her on a few on a few different things and she was obviously the the only um police official to resign over the the failings in in greater manchester she was the whistleblower in that in that case and she for years had uh, those in positions of authority trying to destroy her reputation and her credibility trying to to suggest that she was a crackpot or a fool or that she was making this up or somehow sensationalizing the scale of the abuse when in we now know that she was absolutely accurate in everything that she was saying there were 
you know, sexual health clinic workers, social workers, teachers who raised concerns and were discouraged from making reports due to a belief, an inherent belief that, oh, this couldn't be going on in, in towns and cities like ours. This, this just isn't true. The girls are lying. They're making it up. They're twisting the truth. Uh, it, it's, it's really astonishing how little accountability we've seen for the failings in across the, the UK. You know, how many police officers have lost their jobs? How many council officials have, have faced any real consequences? Uh, we saw Dominic Beck recently was selected as a Labour candidate. He's now stood down of his own accord. I'm assuming he jumped before he was pushed, although... I, Can I you just go that. into that? Because there's a lot of people from overseas, Samantha, who wouldn't know who this councillor is. Just explain who he is and why he was pushed, well, he jumped before he was pushed. So Dominic Beck was a cabinet member mm -hmm. in Rotherham during the time of the child sexual exploitation scandal. He and the rest of the cabinet were, were forced to resign uh, in shame over their mishandling of the, of the, of the, cri of the crisis. And uh, this was in 2015 that, that his resignation occurred, I believe. And was it seven years later? He was selected as a Labour parliamentary candidate for Rother Valley. Mm -hmm. The the slap in the face that is to, to victims and survivors to suggest that a man who had to resign literally in disgrace over his his mishandling and his cabinet's mishandling of the the child sexual exploitation scandal in the area was then allowed to to potentially run to represent these same survivors in parliament. He didn't represent them then, so how on earth would he be fit for public office now? He eventually stood down after GB News, it was, um, exposed this, this, this absolute uh, injustice. And he, like I said, the Labour Party didn't push him out officially, but he, he resigned on his own, of his own accord, although I believe that he, you know, there's no way he wasn't facing internal pressure. We've seen in Telford, again, um, the the Labour leader of Telford Recon Council, who is still the current Labour leader of the council, um, is running now to be the, M the next MP for Telford, Labour MP for Telford, Sean Councillor Sean Davis. Mm -hmm. He's also the Labour uh, Government Association lead. And so he sits in the, in the shadow cabinet unofficially. He wrote a letter in 2018 to the then Home Secretary calling for a potential inquiry into... CSE and Telford to be shut down. He said there was no need for an inquiry, and that the and that the scale of the abuse wasn't um, wasn't being accurately reported. That he believed that a generalised inquiry into child sexual abuse, not child sexual exploitation, a national inquiry uh, that had been that had been in the works since the the mid two thousand tens would be adequate in in addressing the the child sexual exploitation scandal in Telford. That was along with nine other very important men that included the um, the, the chief superintendent of West Mercia Police at the time, the cabinet member for children and young people, Councillor Paul Watling. He also uh, signed his name on that letter. The uh, he He's now, like I said, running to be Labour MP for Telford. Mm -hmm. And he, he hasn't faced any negative repercussions for that, even as recently as as uh, in, in 2022, he released a statement saying, he stated in a council meeting that he was three years old at the time that CSE was happening in Telford, that he continues to, to shirk responsibility for his council's failings to, to address child sexual exploitation with you know shoddy apologies and vague platitudes. It, it seems that those that were the architects of the failings and in dealing with child sexual exploitation are still allowed to to continue their careers unscathed, despite the the thousands of lives that they that they impacted negatively and the thousands of girls that they ignored for for years. Hey, Constantine, do you like being healthy? Of course, in my country we judge man's health by his ability to wrestle bear. Turns out in London wrestle bear has very different meaning. We've all had a night that's got out of hand. We will speak no more of this. This secret will be buried with my ancestors. Well, if you want to stay healthy and not feel like you need to be buried with Constantine's ancestors, then you need to try AG1. AG1 is simple and easy way to get all nutrients you need. 
Each serving contains 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients. One scoop and you feel like a real man. We used it on our America tour where we were constantly on the move, living out of a bag and working every day. AG1 meant we felt great, looked great, and we avoided getting sick. One scoop a day meant we knew we had all the vitamins and minerals needed for the day. We had hugely successful trip. It is very economical and I felt strong enough to wrestle American bear, which we all know is grotesquely weak compared to great Russian bear. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, AG1 is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash trigonometry. That's athleticgreens.com slash trigonometry. Check it out and become real men like me. Samantha, and uh, well, I mean, I, it's, it's a difficult conversation, isn't it? Because uh, punishing people for things that they've done is always going to like... We all think it should happen, but it's always difficult to do because these, you know, it's just it just is. But I suppose from your perspective, would I be right in thinking that your primary concern now is making sure nothing like this ever happens to anyone again, right? Absolutely. And so I suppose the question for you is: when we first talked to Ella Hill, which was I think 2018 or 2019, it would have been. It was 2020. It was during the pandemic. It was just I think was, was it. I think it was before, mate. I think, I think, I think, let's say, let's say, let's call it 2019. I, I mean, I'm terrible with dates. You're probably right, but let's say it was. I think since then, in the last four years, this conversation, thankfully, mm. is is being increasingly had in public and people are actually talking about it. As you said, there have been reports into it. Are you confident that this is now something that wouldn't be repeated? Or is it still ongoing? Is it still not being properly dealt with? Like, what is your take? What is your sense of where we are now with this issue? Child sexual exploitation is still happening in towns and cities across the UK. This isn't a crime of the past. And this is another thing that... That, uh, that those in positions of authority like to say that, you know, mistakes were made and lessons were learned, mm. but this isn't happening anymore. Well, as recently as 2020, I believe it, in, in Telford alone, in Telford and Recon, uh, sorry, in, in, um, in England and Wales alone, there was hundreds, o- over 700 reports of, of alleged child sexual exploitation. Of this reported. kind, like yes, grooming gangs. Yes, grooming so, so, gangs. How is this happening? How has this happened? I don't, I don't get it. Like, we've had all these reports. There have been brave people like you that have come forward. The police and the councils and the social services and the politicians, some of them finally got the balls to start talking about this. How is it possible that 700 people can still be being abused in this way in one, in one town? I think it's... Progress is happening, don't get me wrong. The the conversation is a lot more open than it was, say, 10, 15 years ago. But that doesn't mean that adequate change has been made. Mm. In in Telford, I'll use the Telford example again. Uh, there was a, a specialist team in, in Telford that was set up to, to deal with child sexual exploitation cases and to, to investigate this in West Mercia Police. But it, it was discovered that as recently as 2020, 2021, that team had been scaled back to be virtually non-existent the I, I think that those those in power are saying all the right things they're they're showing a willingness quote unquote to change and to learn from the mistakes of the past but whether that's actually being implemented yet is another question entirely and I also think that that while the the scale of abuse has now been exposed and the 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 level of of the failings is is being brought to national attention there's still a long way to go in dealing with this type of crime there's still a lot of fear there's still a lot of ignorance and arrogance around this issue and so long as those in in power continue to try and minimize the the failings and and shirk responsibility then little girls will continue to be abused some before we go any further, we've used the term child sexual abuse and child sexual exploitation. Could you just clarify the difference between those two terms? Yes. So child sexual exploitation mm-hmm. is, uh, in, in, this, in this context, is referring to group-based grooming. Mm-hmm. It's, it's where a group of, of offenders, of perpetrators, will target a young victim, usually girls. Mm-hmm. They will groom them whether it's there are different tactics so there's the boyfriend tactic there's uh, wooing them with 
you know, affection, with rides, with gifts, with with whatever mean whatever means necessary to to build a sense of trust with the victim. They then will exploit them sexually. So that's in in the case of of Telford, many of these girls were being abused by taxi drivers, by takeaway owners. Uh, and they were being brought to sex parties or passed around between men, uh, often prostituted for money. But it's group-based sexual exploitation and, and grooming. Child sexual abuse mm-hmm. is it refers to the broad umbrella of of abuse against, of sexual abuse of children. So that can include abuse within the family. It does include child sexual exploitation. So child sexual exploitation is a form of child sexual abuse, but it, it falls under the umbrella. Uh, and child sexual abuse is, you know, the broader definition. Uh, grooming can also fall in either category. It can, grooming can be online, it can be in person, it can be via via social media, whatever means grooming takes place. And child sexual exploitation, again, is grooming forms a part of that. Um, and I've, al- I've always clarified, so I was, I was a victim of child sexual ex- abuse and grooming in in Telford I was abused and and um and groomed for nearly a decade by successive men I myself wasn't a victim of the the particular type of of child sexual exploitation that many of that many fellow survivors were but my experience of the failings of the police and local authorities and those in positions of power to address exploitation and grooming and and to to bring justice in my case was identical to to uh to many of of my fellow survivors and so that's i suppose that's why and my experience of the failings in telford to 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 give little girls justice and protect little girls from abuse was what inspired me to to come forward i suppose yeah and, and samantha uh one of the things I find so incredible about everything you've been able to do with your life is you've overcome these awful experiences. And it's something I, we always think about. It's like everyone experiences some form of you know, adversity and trauma and whatever, in your case, obviously, at a much worse and extensive level. And yet here you are. You're 20 years old. You've run an MP's campaign at the age of 17. You're on TV. You're writing columns. How have you been able to overcome all this? How have you been able to deal with the challenges that you faced? Don't get me wrong. I wasn't. I wasn't like I am now. When I was, you know, 16, 17 years old, I I wasn't don't. like you are now. When you were 16, 17, and I didn't go through child sexual abuse. So. I am. Um, see, I, I. I had a lot of anger. I, I had a lot of fear, a lot of resentment, a lot of shame. And I, when I was younger, when I first came forward about the abuse that I suffered, I was a scared little girl who was terrified of speaking out because I felt like I had somehow brought on myself, like I was responsible for the abuse. I, and much of this, this rhetoric was instilled in me by those in, in positions of authority. I, it took me a long time to overcome a lot of that anger and that guilt and that shame. And I still, I still struggle with those feelings on a daily basis. But the way that I, I suppose I was able to come out the other side and now speak about my, my story as I do is I, I, and it sounds very strange. I compartmentalize it mm-hmm. in the way of what I experienced was awful it was it will it will stay with me for the rest of my life but if by speaking out about it and by using my pain and my trauma and and airing it out and and exposing these injustices if I can use my experience to enforce change and to help even just one little girl Mm -hmm. see that you can get through it and that you can survive you can become stronger you can be successful Mm -hmm then it will make it all worth it. You know, everything that I have done since speaking out about, about my experiences is in spite of what was done to me. I think that the, the best kind of revenge is success. Mm-hmm. And by 
not allowing my experience to define me not by not allowing and I hate the I hate the term victim I don't like to think of myself as a victim even though I was victimized I think that by refusing to let myself become all consumed and become prey to what was done to me I can I can I defy all of those expectations for me. I can, it's kind of like giving the middle finger and saying, you tried everything you could to break me and I still rose up again. It's very impressive. Did you ever, did you ever get any justice for what happened to you? Was anyone ever convicted? No. 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 And did, were you offered any kind of therapy or anything of that kind? Yes. It's a, it's a very, very complicated system, I would say, the, the justice system in the UK, in England and Wales specifically. So when I first went to the police about what I experienced, I was assigned an ISVA, which is an independent sexual violence advisor. And I was referred for sexual abuse therapy through an independent charity that worked with the police. I was also, because I was 16, I was shipped to a child psychologist and a child psychiatrist to see if there was anything underlying uh, in in my own psychological <laughs> makeup, I suppose that would, and it was phrased to me as so that they knew how to support me best. But I I came to to realize that it was partly an an interrogation and a a means of finding out if there was anything underlying mentally that would make it more difficult for me to be believed in court. And we've seen this in 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 Rotherham, Rochdale, Telford, of victims and survivors who had underlying mental health difficulties or who had behavioral difficulties or whatever it was, vulnerabilities that they were told that they wouldn't be a suitable suitable witness in court and that it wasn't a good idea to proceed with the case because they don't know how they would play in front of a jury. So I... I had all of these different services around me. And Am my, I right in thinking it doesn't sound like they were massively helpful at, at this point? Based uh, on what you're so my, my independent sexual violence advisor, my ISVA, I will say was absolutely brilliant. She was, it genuinely felt as though she was on my side. But another, and this is something about the, this is something internal about the justice system that people might not know. When it comes to sexual abuse therapy, one of the big things when you're, when you have a case that's ongoing is any therapy that you receive, you're not actually allowed to talk about what happened to you in specific detail. So you can't talk about the abuse. You can't talk about any particulars. You can't name any names. You can't really, you can't address the actual abuse itself at all, because if you do, then the, and it did come to court, then your private notes, your, your therapy sessions could be, um, called upon as evidence in in court and so basically your prior your medical privacy would be compromised if you discussed the particulars of your case during therapy while the case was ongoing and as as many many survivors will know it's a very long process to get to court i mean mine was my case was dropped it, no further action because the cpa the cps believed that there wasn't a realistic prospect of conviction due to it being a historic case I, the process took nearly two years for me to not even reach court. So that was two years where I was receiving some sort of support, but I wasn't actually able to address any, any of the trauma and the abuse that I experienced. It was sort of the way that it was described was keeping the, keeping you ticking along until you can actually access the full package of therapy, which was, so there were two types of therapy. There was the pre-trial therapy, and then there was the, the, the post police involvement therapy which was the full monty where you could discuss everything and really get the help that 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 many victims survivors need as as i needed so for two years i was in this sort of purgatory where i was receiving support to essentially stop myself from spiraling into into a depressive episode or or having a full-on mental breakdown during this very tumultuous period of police investigations and evidence gathering and uh you know going back and forth to the cps and my and my uh, the police sergeant that was in charge of my case but i i wasn't able to to really address any of the the deep rooted issues and so that's something that many people don't know you know while while this very long laborious court 
court proceeding is taking place, victims and survivors aren't actually able to get the support they need in the way they need it in many cases. Sam, listening to your story, the one thing that, I mean, there are many things that I find very upsetting. As someone who used to teach and used to teach vulnerable kids, because I used to teach in very, very deprived areas, I know for a fact that gangs, that these types of individuals, they target the vulnerable. They target the, the girls or the boys who don't come from stable family backgrounds, the ones who struggle at school, the ones who are, for whatever reason, vulnerable, vulnerable or labelled as difficult. And the fact that these victims won't get their day in court because they won't, in inverted commas, play well in front of a jury, mm -hmm. I find utterly disgusting. Absolutely. I, I, and this is, this is what I, this is the point that I was getting to earlier, where uh, victims and survivors have every possible immutable characteristic mm -hmm. exploited and, and turned against them when they try and seek justice for the abuse they suffered. Many, as you said, many mm. victims of this particular type of crime, and it, it isn't just crim sexual exploitation, it's criminal exploitation of children mm. as well, come from disadvantaged backgrounds, whether they, you know, in, in the case of, of child sexual ex exploitation, many of the victims in Telford, not all of them, because any child can be abused, any child can be exploited, mm. anyone can fall victim to this sort of this sort of crime. And I don't want to denigrate the experiences of any survivors, mm. but Many survivors were already known to social services. They were already in care. They had difficult family backgrounds. Their parents were, you know, alcoholics or addicted to drugs or absent or whatever it is. Many of the many of the survivors and victims in in cases like in towns and cities like Telford were from a disadvantaged or vulnerable background. And so it begs the question, with all of these services that are supposed to be around supporting children, supporting these kinds of children, how did everyone seem to, to fail to see the signs or fail to take action to protect them? In, in the case of social services, there was, as I said, in, in Telford, for example, a massive failing failure to, to not notice the signs, but to act on them. Because it was, you know, there, there were children that were going to sexual health clinics for the morning after pill every single week. There were children as young as 13 or 14 that were having abortions who told the, the work, their social workers, oh, I've got a boyfriend who's 27 or, or whatever. I, oh, this is happening. This is happening to me. This is what I was doing. This is where I was. And yet no, no further action was taken. I, I think that it, it really speaks to you. And, and the, the point that I was making earlier as well about the justice system being more than misogynistic. Mm -hmm. It isn't just that many of these victims were little girls. It's that they were from backgrounds that were less than ideal. They didn't fit the cookie cutter profile of the perfect victim. They weren't going to be able to, and, and this is something that I always get. Uh, I get a lot of people on Twitter that especially that say it's always Twitter, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> the armchair experts themselves that say, yeah. oh, you don't sound like someone that would have been a victim of, of grooming or sexual abuse. Oh, you don't look like someone that would have, that would have been a victim. And it, it just creates this paradox where any, any child who isn't the, the perfect victim, who doesn't speak well, come from an affluent family, play well in front of a jury, who doesn't tick the boxes of what the, the Crown Prosecution Service is looking for in, in someone that will play well in court, it, it suggests that they are somehow less deserving of justice mm -hmm. and less deserving of support. And if, if they, if in my, as in my case, you do have, have a, a posh accent, as I've been told, um, or you, you went to, to a good school, or you don't fit the typical victim profile on the other side of things, People somehow believe that, oh, you couldn't possibly have experienced this. This isn't, you know, are you sure that this happened? There's, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Damned if you're disadvantaged and damned if you're not. Um, but in the case of child sexual exploitation in particular, you're right that the, that the majority of these girls were white, working class, disadvantaged from, from vulnerable backgrounds and predators the, those that, that took advantage of them preyed on their vulnerability and were able to exploit them, groom them, abuse them, rape them because there was no one around them that was willing to, to protect them. 
So, and Samantha, coming back to you mentioned the, the after the the case and the investigation and the case doesn't go to court, you get this full Monty mm -hmm. therapy. Was that useful? Was did that help you in, in your recovery from everything? I think it was uh, a mixture. I'll be a hundred percent honest and say that. So I, by the time my case was dropped, I had just aged out of the system, so I was no longer able to access. So my social worker closed me, closed my case. I was shoved off and told you're an adult now, go away, leave us alone. Um, just I, simply like that? Pretty much. There's there's no, there's no, there was no continuation of support for me um, from child services. And during the, obviously during the pandemic, this was exacerbated in the fact that, you know, you weren't able to really see, see your workers face to face and so on. I received a certain amount of support um, and and therapeutic intervention, a, a little bit of the full Monty, but I, I'll be fully honest and, and say that at the time that I was receiving this this therapy, I wasn't ready to engage. Mm -hmm. I wasn't at the point where I was ready. And after I think part of it was was because I had spent two years in this limbo of of living through this experience every day, but not being able to talk about not about it, not being able to address it. And so by the time that I was able to to access the, this full service, I suppose, of therapy. I was scared. Mm -hmm. I was angry. I, I was angry that my case has been dropped. I was afraid. I still felt this massive shame and an inability to process it. And I, yeah, I, I, I wasn't ready to to go through it. I'm now in a far better place than I well, am. Well, this is what I'm kind of get, trying to get at, Samantha. What I'm trying to get out of you is how come you're so well put together? It's <laughs> <laughs> like you've obviously moved on yeah. and you've moved past it and you're now living your life and you're very accomplished and very successful and you've got a bright future and you're at university studying law and everything's brilliant. Right. And, and, I, and the thing that's, well, not everything. <laughs> nothing is ever oh, I was, I was just going to say, uh, I know it's not very, it's not very trendy to say, but medication, medication mm -hmm. really helped me. I'm on, and this is getting a little bit vulnerable, I suppose, <laughs> but I, I'm on antidepressants. I'm on anti-anxiety medication. I'm on sleeping tablets. I take sleeping tablets most nights to, to keep myself going. I have brilliant, wonderful support systems now that I didn't have when I was younger. You know, my, and I'll always say I'm, although everything that happened to me was, was awful and horrible. I was very, very lucky to go to a wonderful school. I went to a, to a little grammar school in, in the middle of the Shropshire countryside that took two, that took over two hours to get to in the morning. So don't get me wrong. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, but I, you know, when I was homeless, when I was sofa surfing, my head of year, uh, who I will always regard as someone that saved my life and someone that I'm she's my she's my phone background actually she's on my lock screen a photo of me and her um she did my laundry for me she let me keep my bags keep my clothes in her office when I when I didn't when I didn't you know I wasn't able to carry them around with me every night she made sure that I could shower at school when I didn't have access to a shower she ensured that I had at least one hot meal a day every day bought me toiletries and a towel and things like that now at the stage that I'm at in, in my life at the moment, my MP, my local MP, the MP for Telford, Lucy Allen, she helped me like absolutely no one else. And I, I you always hear that age old stereotype of Tories don't care about anyone but themselves. Mm -hmm. And I'd say that she, in my opinion, defies that stereotype. She took a chance on a 17 year old with no experience and, and a very difficult background gave me a shot during the 2019 campaign. She took me under her wing. I ended up working for her for, for nearly two years before I went to university. She is one of the my biggest supporters and uh, an absolutely amazing mentor that I'm privileged to have. There are other, other amazing people that I have in my life who I can go to for advice, for support, for a, a shoulder to cry on or someone to lean on when I'm having a tough day because not every day is like this. I spend, there are days that I, and again, getting a bit vulnerable, but there are days that I spend just curled up in bed watching Netflix and not able to do anything because it's, it's, and this is something about the process that isn't off, that isn't always talked about. You know, you see 
polished products on on TV with hair done and and makeup on and, and a nice here, jumper. But... <laughs> I'm very sorry. Mate, we're wearing more makeup than her. What are you talking about? <laughs> Once you get into your forties, uh... yeah, you go. Yeah, this is the best it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, this is. It's a journey, I would say, and I'm not. I'm by no means perfect. I'm by no means healed. But yeah, I'd say that's how I get through it on a day to day basis. I've got amazing support systems now that I that I'm very grateful to have and that I didn't have when I was younger. I am very well medicated uh, and, and I just take every day as, as it comes. And how, how have your experiences shaped how you think about, you, you know, you mentioned working for a conservative MP. How have your experiences shaped how you think about the world? Because you mentioned not wanting to be a victim. And of all the people in the world who could be a victim if they wanted to and who could cash in on it and capitalize on it, someone in your position is like perfectly placed to do that. And it's the trendy thing nowadays to be a victim. And you get people who, you know, had two parents, went to a nice school, went to a good university, and because of the color of their skin or because they're a woman or because of this, they're on TV talking about how oppressed they are. And here you are saying, I don't want to be a victim. It's, like, the, it's the monopoly of victimhood, isn't it? I think mm. as as cliche as it sounds, I've learned to realize what the big things are, what the big issues are. And I, I've, I guess that's part of that's partly because of what I experienced, but I've come to realize that a bad hair day is in the end of the world. And, you know, the, this idea that everyone has to be a victim, that, that your, your horrible experiences or your, your inherent, your inherent immutable characteristics somehow make you, you more or less deserving of, of special treatment or, or support or the, the victimhood badge. I, I just don't buy into any of it. And that's part of the reason why I'm a conservative. I always I always get asked why why are you conservative? Surely you'd be a Labour supporter. Surely surely you'd be left wing if you have gone through all of this. You know, you were a victim of the system. How are you not left wing? How do you not want to change it? And and I always respond in that I do want to change it, but I don't think that you can enforce change and impact change by by perpetuating that victimhood. Mm-hmm. I think that the there's something deeply anti-aspirational about this whole identity politics, critical race theory, uh, you know, identitarian victimhood, uh, uh, victimhood, I don't know, uh, story. Culture. Yeah, culture. culture. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, um, no, no, don't I, Yeah, I just think that there's something so deeply anti-aspirational about it. The idea that if you have gone through a terrible time or you were born with with a different color skin, that you are always going to be behind and that nothing is ever going to go your way, that you need to have special treatment, you need to have the the white man step aside for you to be successful. It suggests that, that people aren't capable of succeeding off their own merit. And I think that with the right support, and don't get me wrong, especially for for for, for those that have experienced child sexual exploitation or grooming or child sexual abuse, it is very very hard. It's it isn't easy to to pick yourself up and to to get out of that. But with the right sort of support, anyone is capable of achieving. And I think that the conservative messaging in Mosho is far more akin to aspiration and and hand ups not handouts than than the left wing rhetoric i think that there's just there's nothing that i see that is that is fruitful or or progressive or positive about telling people that you're a victim you should feel angry at the world you should hate everyone around you for for making life so tough for you no it should be the the messaging should be yes life can be life can be bad life can be really 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 sucky but you you are capable of achieving you're capable of doing something better you're capable of lifting yourself out of that situation and these are the things that we want to do to support you with that this is a question that i didn't think i was going to ask but you're such a remarkable person that i'm i'm, I'm going to ask it what, what do you think about the way that we talk about exploitation, rape, abuse in the media now, and particularly with things like Me Too, et cetera, et cetera? Do you think we discuss it in an honest way? Do you, 
disagree with the way that we discuss it? I think that the one thing I would say is, while, again, the conversation is more open than it used to be, mm -hmm. people still aren't being candid about the nature of this type of crime. What, what are we not the, saying? Uh, I mean, as, as in my own experience, I've been asked going on shows before, can you not mention the word rape? Or can you not mention the, the, the word yeah, Pakistan? That is me down yeah. to a T. Is that something I'll put my foot right in? <laughs> it's essentially a, ga a gagging clause that, yeah. that you know, you're allowed so you, to discuss this, when you do like TV only, or radio, that yeah, type of thing. But only well, they're, they're only asking you not to say the word rape or not mm, to mention the race because, of the... Because somehow it is... Uh, too too much for the modern ears. It's unpalatable to to talk about it in such in such uh, frank detail. And I think that that's what I would would say needs to be improved upon. Mm -hmm. Because realistically, if the police can say, if the police were allowed to say that white working class girls victims of child sexual exploitation were white slags and packy shaggers, mm -hmm. why can I not repeat it on national TV and expose exactly what it is that they said? Why is there this double standard? in the media and in in television and radio that somehow the girl the girls that were that were abused raped exploited groomed by predominantly pakistani muslim men were were forced to go through this but we but we as a society can't can't bear repeating it in in open and honest detail i think that the conversation is far from from frank and open and honest, and that there needs to be a lot more done to unwrap the cotton wool around the mainstream media and say that as long as as long as we have these these sensitivities and these no go areas around the topic of rape and exploitation, then little girls are going to continue to be abused because it just furthers this this culture of ignorance and victim blaming and silence and shame. It it only silence only serves to to protect the perpetrators of this crime. Mm -hmm. And cultural sensitivity, political correctness, only serves to protect the predators. Samantha, do you think one of the reasons why, with the Me Too movement, Harvey Weinstein was such a huge figure is that, and push back if you disagree on this, is because he very neatly encapsulated what we want a villain to be. You know, he's a rich white guy who's powerful, you know, and people felt that they couldn't, you know, they, 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 they couldn't challenge him. And he obviously acted. It was just him. And then everybody else kind of obeyed him and did. And also he, his victims are very high status women usually. Right. Yeah. So that helps. Yeah. I did a, I did a piece for the mail on this issue. Exactly. The Harvey Weinstein and, mm. and, um, the Harvey Weinstein issue and the Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell case. Mm. Uh, the, the reason why these celebrity cases, the same with Prince Andrew, were such a, a, a national scandal, why the, the paper was, were doing double page spreads on Ghislaine Maxwell's court outfit and covering it wall to wall for weeks and weeks was because it appeals, it appeals to our societal our societal intrigue and interest with the with the idea of celebrity mm. these were this was a lifestyle that the ordinary person couldn't even dream of you know private jets and and epstein island and celebrities and millions of dollars being traded for sexual for sexual favors it was very much glamorized and mystified and played into the into the myth of hollywood i would say and and it was far more glamorous to talk about billionaires on on private boats and and islands than, you know, a, a working class white girl from Telford being being raped around the back of of a of a kebab shop. Mm -hmm. It's in in my opinion, it was so it was so highly covered because the victims and the perpetrators and to some extent the victims were celebrities they were part of this jet setting lifestyle that many of us can only dream of whereas once again it isn't it isn't glamorous or cool or fashionable to talk about little girls in Rotherham Rochdale Oldham Banbury Telford etc being groomed and exploited by predominantly Pakistani men and do you think that was one element or there's there's lots of elements of the of the whole me too movement that ignored these types of crimes mm. i think that the Me Too movement is a, is a difficult one because there, it, it was very much, it existed in a time and place in, in Hollywood specifically, I would say. It was the idea that it was 
it was demystifying the the Hollywood myth and showing that sexual abuse and exploitation and and harassment was very much alive and well in Hollywood and show it and lifting the lid on this culture of misogyny and and grooming and and victim blaming within Hollywood. I think that child sexual exploitation and abuse is completely removed from that. It's a it's an entirely different kettle of fish because. Uh, and and this isn't me saying that that it shouldn't be that people shouldn't raise the sort of awareness of child sexual exploitation that they did in the Me Too movement. But I think that again, it it's it all comes down to the class of the victims and the perpetrators. Mm. It, it, the Me Too movement was a specifically focused on this celebrity the celebrity lifestyle and it did snowball some to some extent and there were ordinary women quote unquote that were speaking out about the abuse they experienced but it was very much to do with hollywood and and the celebrity world and the the sexual harassment that was going on there whereas what is happening in towns like telford rather than rochdale etc is a lot closer to home it's a grooming crisis in our own backyards and that is very very different from the me too movement uh, samantha there's one other question that I, I wanted to ask you because of all the people that we've interviewed pretty much other than ella you have more reason than anyone i think to hate men and we do live in a society where increasingly that narrative from certain quarters at least seems to me like it is being advanced and it is being pushed and you know, toxic masculinity, this and men are that, and the patriarchy and the this and the that. And like I say, I mean, if you were if you were to sit in that chair and go, you know what, I think men are trash, I'd be like, you know what, I generally don't agree, but I think you've got a reason to. <laughs> you've got a pass. You, 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 you've got. A, yeah. You you can say that. What do you make of the way we have the conversations around these issues, men and women, men's roles, women's roles in society, etc.? I think. There's a very big difference between hating men and wanting to to change the culture around masculinity and and the way that women are treated in society. I don't hate men. I think that many men are, are perfectly decent and upstanding human beings. I'm not. I'm definitely not putting on my tinfoil hat and and raising my pitchfork and my stake and and calling for all of them to be burned in 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 the town square. But I think that. The, the way that the conversation needs to be had, and this is the problem with, with some radical feminist movements. I would call myself a feminist, but I wouldn't say that I'm a, a new wave or a current feminist in, in the way that it, that it seems to have, to have spiraled now where, you know, people, people say the future is female and, and, uh, F all men and that, that we should eat, eat, eat all men that are, <laughs> that all men are awful, horrible, nasty criminals. And that they should they should all be you know dis- expelled from society. Um, the conversation really needs to be around how can we uh, deconstruct these ideas of toxic masculinity and and misogyny in society because misogyny is still a very very big problem, especially in the major institutions of this of this country and in, across the world. The police, the, the the government, the way that women are treated in 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 all areas of society still needs to be improved. And it would be remiss to, obviously women can be perpetrators of sexual abuse as well. That's that, that does happen. But in the majority of cases, yeah. men are the perpetrators and women are the victims or, or little girls or little boys are the victims, women and children. So it's, it's about having an honest and open conversation, but also not villainizing everybody. Mm-hmm. There's, I think that we we seem to have lost nuance in modern political debates. There's no ability for people to say that this, and it's the same with with Pakistani Muslim grooming gangs. That you aren't able to say that not all Pakistani people are bad, not all Muslims are bad, but there is a significant problem within this community that is that is unique for the most part to this community. This is going on, and we need to figure out how we can address it. It's the same with men. People say, oh, it's not all men that do this. You know, women can be rapists too, blah, 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 blah. Yes, that's true. I'm not denying that. I don't think that anyone is denying that that it's not all men that are that are perpetrators of, of sexual abuse, but there are too many women that are victims. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a I think it was an NSPC C uh study that came out that found that I think it was like 96% of 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 girls had experienced some sort of sexual harassment before the age of 16. 
That's a, a staggering figure. So yes, it isn't all men, but it's too many women, yes. in my opinion. And so we can we can have this conversation and say that there there is a problem with with a lot of men abusing women and children. But that doesn't mean that it's all men that are bad and evil and horrible. And and this is where maybe I would add even a little bit more news. The fact that there are a lot of female victims does not mean that there are a lot of male perpetrators mm. necessarily, right? Mm. It could be that a small minority of people commit a lot of those offenses or do a lot of those things over time. And I think that's maybe where part of the nuance is getting lost because I actually happen to think, and you know, this is just my opinion, that one of the solutions to some of these problems is for men who are not like that to have more of a role in protecting women, right? And I think that's where my concern is sometimes when we start to tar people with the same brush, you're actually pushing good men away from being involved and and being active in looking after people because that is, you know, it's not a fashionable thing to say, but that is part of men's jobs is to protect others, you know, protect children, protect women, protect partners, etc. And I think we're losing that a little bit as well. I think that... That you're absolutely right in in the fact that men can do a lot more to help protect women and children. Mm-hmm. I think that it's it's the, the the discussion that's had the topic of of what can we be doing to raise our sons and our and our our young men to be better when they than previous generations that came before them. It, you know, it, it starts at a very young age. It, these these toxic this toxic ideology and this idea that women are somehow beneath men or that they are only to be to be used for sexual gratification or pleasure that that somehow women are inferior needs to be tackled and addressed in the same way when it comes to racism. It, it needs to you know people aren't born racist. People aren't born sexual predators. This behavior is learned. There was a case in, in Telford, and it's on, an ongoing case, so I won't comment on it too much, but there was an on, there's an ongoing case in Telford of a boy, a 13-year-old boy, who has been arrested for, I believe it's nine counts of rape and 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 uh, several other sexual assaults of women aged, of girl, women and girls aged 16 to 34. This is a 13-year-old boy that has been accused of these crimes. He wasn't born that way. This behavior is learned, whether he learned it from from his father or his schoolmates or his uncle or his brothers or whoever it is, someone taught this little boy that it was okay to sexually assault women. And so tackling that at the at a very young age and dispelling this 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 sort of ideology and teaching young boys how to be good men, how to be good, upstanding, law-abiding, respectful citizens is the key, I think, to 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 making a difference. But let's let's not get get it twisted. People will always there will always be bad people in the world. People mm-hmm. will always rape, abuse, exploit. People will always be be horrible. Mm-hmm. But I think that so long as we continue to put up these barriers to open and honest conversation and part of and one of those barriers is this this lack of nuance and the the, the rhetoric that all men are bad and that all men should be should be exiled and whatever well like um, i say you'd be that, that for, you'd stops, be forgiven stops. you'd be forgiven for saying that if you wanted to but i guess uh, my point would be with that 13 year old boy you actually think you i think you put your finger on it which is if that boy had a father in the home who taught him how to treat women properly, that never would have happened, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that's part of the answer as well, is, mm-hmm. is for men to be better. Um, uh, I think that's really important. Samantha, anyway, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, although obviously it's a difficult conversation, uh, but an important one. And, and we're, uh, I'm really glad we've been able to have you on uh, to keep reminding people that these things aren't over. Uh, it's still going on. There's still work to do. And uh, we thank you for for sharing your story with us and for coming on. You've got a bright future ahead of you. uh, So we wish you all the best. Before we let you go, we've got uh, our final question and some questions from our supporters that they've already submitted. Our final question, as always, is what's the one thing we're not talking about as a society that you think we really should be? I'm going to go a little bit left field here. And because we've we've obviously talked a lot about child sex exploitation, grooming, and I would say that would be the obvious answer for what we need to be talking about more in society. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it light here and say opera. Opera is the thing that we need to be talking about more. And I I I don't think my Twitter followers, I tweeted about it earlier, and I don't think that it was it was a bit too niche for them, but I believe that opera is the best genre of music 
out there. I believe that it is that it should be mainstream, that everyone should be taking their children to see La Traviata or Carmen or Cosi Fantuti. I think that opera needs to be needs to be spoken about and revered more than it is in society. <laughs> spoken <laughs> like a real conservative. <laughs> what can I say? You know, my grandfather, here's a story for you. My grandfather was uh, a working class joiner brought up in Wigan in the north of England. And he volunteered to join the army during the Second World War. And he went and part of where he fought was in Italy. And he fell in love with opera. He fell in love with opera, he fell in love with Italy. So he came back and he was working in, in, on the, on the, in the railways with all these big other working class men. And they all thought he was a bit odd because he would be there working whilst listening to La Traviata. I love that. I think that you know opera is, and this is gonna, this is turning into a conversation about accessibility in opera. But opera is is far more accessible than it used to be, and there's there's a there's a joy to be found mm. in appreciating a good musical score. Forget what, forget Lizzo and and Sam Smith and Harry Styles and and all of this modern filth that's getting put out. I want to. <laughs> you I, are so conservative, Samantha. It's modern filth. I think I always like to think of myself as an eighty five year old woman trapped in trapped You've got in her a, opinions. Yeah, so trapped, in a, trapped in a young person's body. You know, all I want is to sit at home with a glass of wine. I do this sometimes. Sit at home with a glass of wine and and a you know a, a camembert and listen to, to Cosi Fantuti or, or La Boheme on, on the radio. It's, it's, it's something that I think we need to get, reject modernity and, and embrace tradition. That's my message for, for all of your lovely followers. We're going to call this episode, Ban This Modern Filth. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Samantha, where can people find you online if they want to follow your work and, and uh, follow along with your career? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Samantha Taghoy. That's T-A-G-H-O-Y, spelled as it sounds. I'm not really active on anything else. I, I think that Twitter is my is my my poison of choice. Mm -hmm. But if people are interested in reading my my print journalism, I'm a columnist for the Spectator and the Daily Mail. If you search Samantha Smith Spectator or Samantha Smith Daily Mail, you you might find a 1970s peace activist first. But I'll, I'll be the second one that shows up. So, yeah, that's, that's the way that people can find me. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to meet you. And thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you on Locals for the bonus questions. Take care and see you soon. If I could ask the government to enact one policy right, right now, it would be to... Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.